This episode of Pet Resource Radio is brought to you by Nicholson Capital Management. At Nicholson Capital Management, they've got one mission to help their clients evaluate and reach their financial goals. Their active wealth management services and consulting services will make your journey easier to navigate and place your goals within reach. Just visit nicholsoncap.com. Nicholson Capital Management, your journey to reach your financial goals starts here. Pet Resource Radio is also brought to you by our friends at One Kansas City Radio. Listen at 100.1 in the KC area or listen online at onekcradio.org. Today we're bringing you the second part of our cat chat with Dr. Michael Delgado. That and more on this episode of Pet Resource Radio. From the Pet Resource Center of Kansas City, I'm Dave Shapiro. And I'm Sierra Howe. Welcome to the show. We're coming to you from a building where there's lots of changes going on right now. We're located at 59th and Truce in KC Mo, and we're a nonprofit whose goal is to keep pets and people together through supportive services for folks in need. Exactly. That's what we do. How yes. are you doing? I'm doing good. I had a cup of coffee, I ate a banana, and we just had a kitten cuddle party. So I'd say this is a good Thursday morning. Yeah, no, it was not necessarily on track at first, and I feel like (laughs) the kittens really brought everything together. They always do. You know that. (laughs) (laughs) I I was told I already can't take one home. So so, there you go. I guess that's a downfall, but I'll get over it. Well, we're going to bring you the second half of our conversation with Dr. Michael Delgado in a bit. But first, a little pet news. Phoenix, a St. Bernard Shepherd mix, arrived at San Diego Humane Society a little more than a year ago as a stray. According to People magazine, he was malnourished, covered in fleas, and missing fur. But their biggest concern was a couple of masses that Phoenix had on his body that turned out to be cancerous. They diagnosed Phoenix with TVT, which is transmissible venereal tumors, which can be really serious if left untreated. Luckily, they caught the cancer early enough, which made Phoenix a good candidate for chemotherapy. They assisted him through 13 vincristine chemotherapy treatments, and the masses reduced in size, but he wasn't out of the woods just yet. That's when Dr. Colleen Tanzi, a veterinarian from L.A., volunteered to commute two hours twice a week on her days off to give Phoenix electrochemotherapy. Phoenix was adopted by Colette, a vet assistant who works at the San Diego Humane Society and just recently was brought back into their facility for a one-year cancer-free surprise anniversary party. Quote, Phoenix is a big dog with an even bigger personality, says his mom. He inspires me to see the good in everyone, and I feel so lucky to get to spend my days with him. I'm forever grateful for all the caretakers that showered him with love and made his recovery possible. Very sweet. I love this story. I always say that it's hard to not see the pictures when you're just listening to us talking about it, but he's the cutest dog and the party was adorable. Mm -hmm. But I think the big takeaway here is that it really does take a village to help a pet in need. Um, I kept thinking when I was reading the story, I was thinking, you know, if this was 50 years ago, what would it look like? Right. Um, Uh, So euthanasia. Yeah. That's where animal welfare was. I know. And so it's it's really inspiring to see everyone come together to help a pet out who doesn't even have a family yet. Yeah. And obviously somebody fell in love with him because they followed him 
you know, through his journey, but to commute two hours a week, that's dedication. And that's a really good vet. Yeah. Next up as a middle-aged man with mush for brains, TikTok doesn't make a lot of sense to me, especially when I see things like this trend where folks pretend that their dogs have bitten them in order to get a funny reaction. There's that trend as well as the one where folks bark in their dog's face to freak them out. This racks up views, sure, but what's the effect on dogs themselves? A Newsweek reporter spoke to Joe Nutkins, a dog trainer, who pointed out that a lot of the dog's reactions indicate that they don't really understand what's going on. They don't recognize they're being implicated in something and instead give calming signals like licking their human's hand or face. More than that, she says, quote, watching these videos, so many dog owners are not very good at interacting with their dogs. They are pushing their dog's face about with their hands. Some are lightly slapping their dog's face, all to try and cause their dog to open their mouth. In addition, Nutkins thinks that there could be lasting problems as well. Quote, many dogs will find this way of interacting uncomfortable and potentially it can lead them to becoming hand shy or put off playing with their owner. Being hand shy makes examining our dogs so much harder and stressful for the dogs. As a pet owner, but even more so as an owner of a shy and fearful dog, I'm not going to lie. This kind of stuff does make me mad. Yeah. No, it, it really. But yeah. we're here to educate. Mm -hmm. So it is, you know. A conversation starter. Mm -hmm. But man, I'm very protective of her. So anybody who comes into my house, I'm like, listen, you're coming into her house. Right. So please be respectful. She's not very fond of you. Right. So just don't look her in the eyes. <laughs> yep. But. Yeah, I can't imagine. I don't know. It, obviously, you know, we work in animal welfare. We know things other people maybe don't know. They have mm -hmm. just a, a, you know, non-animal welfare relationship with their, their dog. Um, but you know, I, and I don't think that anyone listening necessarily needs to hear that, but don't do that mm -hmm. and just in case, you know, if, my big thing is, is why not take the time to educate about dog body language on a TikTok versus these, I put air quotes, silly challenges right. that actually Dude. encourage Poor behavior. Right. And then when it all comes down to it, the dog is in the wrong for reacting yeah. or er developing and making it a habit. Yeah. So. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's unfortunate. Sorry to end on a downer, folks. But also you can follow us on TikTok because we're recently uh -huh. on there. We're at Pet Resource Center of KC. Uh, we never, ever, you know, move dogs' heads around. Um, all right. Well, why don't we go finish our chat with Dr. Michael Delgado? All right. As we said, this is the second part of our chat with Dr. Michael Delgado. If you want to hear the first part, it's in episode 46. Obviously, if you're listening to this on your podcasting app, you already know how to find it. Um, if you are listening to this on 1KC Radio, then find your podcasting app and check it out. Dr. Michael Delgado is a certified applied animal behaviorist, a certified cat behavior consultant, and an affiliate member of the American Veterinary Society of Animal Behavior. She offers cat behavior consulting through her business, Feline Minds, and is the resident cat behavior expert for Rover and Smalls. She co-authored the book Total Cat Mojo with Jackson Galaxy, and that's what you need to know. Here we go. Okay, well, now let's talk about puzzle feeders, because it's common practice to recommend puzzle feeders to folks whose cats eat too quickly or too much or just need more enrichment. But you've done a couple of studies looking at the efficacy of food puzzles, and the results have not quite been what you'd expect, <laughs> uh, including yeah. the fact that our kitties may just, in fact, be freeloaders for the most part. What can you tell us about what you've discovered through this research? Sure. Um, so 
the um, kind of phenomenon you, you briefly mentioned, you know, freeloading or, you know, contra freeloading, right, is, is really what um, people have studied in many species. And that is the tendency for animals in captivity to prefer to work for their food rather than just have freely available food. And there's lots of different, you know, kind of theories about why animals might do that, including boredom, um, maybe having more control over their environment. But it is a phenomenon that people have studied in you know, many species from bears and wolves, lots of primates, humans, rodents, pigeons, etc. And um, so, you know, a lot of these studies will involve like, you know, OK, the rat can like push a lever and get a pellet or they can, you know, eat from like a bowl of pellets. Um, and people have also looked at, you know, what we call foraging enrichment or food puzzles. These are devices where an animal has to interact with them and then food falls out or they can extract food with a paw and then they get to eat the food. So what's interesting is if you look at this body of research, um, basically all tested species appear to contra freeload, but they, except for one species, <laughs> which is um, domestic cats. So there's this one study of domestic cats that came out in 1971. It was a study of six cats who were living in a laboratory and they were, you know, food deprived. They were underweight. That's kind of like a lot of um, laboratories keep animals at a very low body weight to mm. maintain like food interests and stuff. But um, but anyway, this study found that the cats did not prefer to work for their food. They ate the freely available food first and only then would they go and push the lever to get food. Right. So there was all this, you know, like cats are the only species that don't contra freeload. And, you know, a lot of research kind of, and you know, just this implication that cats are have somehow either outsmarted us or they're just lazy, right? And, <laughs> you know, as a behavior consultant, I do recommend puzzle feeders um, for the reasons you outlined, for cats who eat too fast or need help losing weight or need enrichment. I, I do find that it's a, an amazing source of enrichment for some cats, and um, I use them with my own cats. I, I mm -hmm. think they're really fun and um, can be very beneficial in my experience as a consultant for um, combating boredom and reducing like kind of the attention seeking problematic behaviors that people might have with their cats. So when I was a postdoc at UC Davis, so a postdoc is a position you have after you get your PhD and mm -hmm. it's usually very research focused. And um, I was working at the veterinary school at UC Davis um, doing research related to cat behavior and health. And um, I, I had an undergrad student who um, was interested in doing a research project. So we were chatting about different options that we could work on together. And um, I was like, oh, I've always wanted to do a contra freeloading study. And I'd already done, you know, some survey based work on food puzzles and um, written another paper with some colleagues on the benefits of using food puzzles from a clinical perspective. And what was interesting is that when um, we surveyed cat owners about their food puzzle use, um, people who did not use food puzzles often mentioned that their cat was lazy. Um, they didn't think their cat was smart enough. You know, a lot of kind of disparaging comments sure, about their sure. cats. Um, and, you know, and genuinely some people think it's mean to make their cats work for food. Right. Um, so, you know, I was like, this would be a really like interesting thing to revisit, right? We have this one small study that says cats don't contra freeload. You know, I see my own cats working for food. I see my clients' cats working for food. Maybe this is, you know, maybe that study was wrong or maybe that study, you know, just some of the things that, that were going on in that study, laboratory cats, um, they were hungry. Maybe that's why the cats didn't contra freeload. So let's take a look and try to come up with a way to test this in the home environment where the cats are not stressed. They're, you know, living happily and, um, you know, we can have 
cat owners set up cameras for us and we can we can set up this experimental design to test it. And so the cats were um, tested in the homes. We had 17 cats who were able to complete the study. And this was during COVID. So we did not get as many cats as we wanted. And, right. you know, it was, it was a little bit stressful to try to recruit people and everything. But we, we managed to get everything, like, contact-free and support people. But basically the experimental design was um, cat owners present their cats with 10 trials with a food puzzle, which was the Trixie Tunnel Feeder. It's a round food puzzle that has little, like, tunnels in it that the cat can scoop food out of it's pretty easy to use in my opinion um and then um and then we to control for the size and, and shape of the puzzle we offered cats food on a tray that was the same dimensions it was just flat and they could put the food on top of the tray um so the cats could either work for the food or um eat the freely available food that they didn't they didn't have to do any additional work for um so people over the course of three or four days did 10 trials. And so um, we had them do like two or three trials a day, depending on their cat's feeding schedule. They Mm -hmm. fed their cats the food they always ate. And we tried to maintain the cat's regular feeding schedule to the extent possible. So we were trying not to disrupt the cat's normal behaviors. Um, But instead of, you know, feeding their cats from a bowl, they would use the puzzle and the tray and put an equal amount of food on both. And um, so they had to weigh the food and record how much food the cat ate from both. And like I said, we had everything um, on video so we could later code the cat's responses. And so we wanted to know how much food did they eat from each source? Which one did they go to first? Mm-hmm. And um, how much time did they spend at each? And from that, we were going to assess were cats contra freeloaders. So if cats were contra freeloaders, meaning they preferred to work for their food, we would expect them to eat more food from the puzzle. We would expect them to approach the puzzle first, um, showing that they preferred it and spend more time at it. And overwhelmingly, the cats did not contribute. Um, they, um, they ate more food from the tray than the puzzle. They spent more time at the tray than the puzzle. And they almost always went to the tray first and ate the food that was available there before going to the food puzzle. And some of the cats wouldn't eat from the food puzzle, even though before they could even be in the study, they had to demonstrate that they could eat food from the puzzle and understood it. So, wow. um, so it was... Um, it was, you know, a little disappointing for me <laughs> because, uh, you know, one, I thought we were going to, you know, prove this 1971 study wrong and show that cats were contra freeloaders. And it kind of puts me in a funny position, right, as a consultant who's sure. going around telling people, like, feed your cat from a puzzle, except my own research says that they don't prefer it. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, I kind of have to um, think of this in a much bigger framework, like, okay, um, overwhelmingly cats did not prefer to eat food they had to work for over freely available food um so that could be just like a you know cats are very efficient they spend a lot of time resting they kind of work hard sleep hard yep um so so it could be just what's the easiest way to get what i need right and the other take on this is like okay well they don't prefer it but we don't have any evidence that they found it aversive um right Three cats refuse to use the puzzle. So what that tells me is that there's also a lot of individual differences. The other thing we noticed was that the cats who tended to be contra freeloaders, so that, you know, there were individual differences and some cats certainly did spend more time at the food puzzle and eat all the food from the food puzzle. The cats who ate all the food from the food puzzle ate all of the food available during the, the trial, whereas other cats ate some food and then left. So that tells me that food motivation may be a big part of this. Um, right. So, you know, I think we've all known some cats that are kind of food frenzied. Oh, just, yes. You know, it's like, 
you could you feel like you could just feed them forever and they would still be very excited about food. So those cats are excellent candidates for food puzzles. Mm-hmm. Um, and other cats may be candidates for food puzzles. You just have to really um, watch them carefully and pick the right puzzle and um, make sure that it's it's not um, interfering with their food consumption. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah, it's I definitely you know with. With Tanar, she's incredibly food motivated as opposed to Squeaks, who is not. Um, mm-hmm. And so we had a puzzle for Tanar. Um, she's a little too smart for them sometimes. <laughs> uh, we got one of the ones that, that's the kind of inverted cone, and they can yep. put their paw in there. And um, oh, yeah. she figured out pretty quickly that she could just dump the whole thing over, <laughs> and then all of the kibble would be on the floor. Sure. Um, but we, you know, we've, we've managed her stuff. So that's, it's good now. I mean, that's a form of problem solving, right? So, right. you know, it's, it's how she gets the job done and that's okay too. <laughs> um, okay. Well, let's see. We're at like 27 minutes. So I'm going to skip questions seven and eight okay. and, and just go to wet and dry food. And then we'll talk about what you got coming up next. Okay. Great. Okay. Okay. And now the big question, wet food or dry food? Uh, what are the upsides and downsides to each? Yeah, I get asked this question a lot. And the first thing I'm going to say is I am not a veterinary nutritionist. So uh-huh. I don't generally give nutrition advice. Right. Um, and I think people are very surprised because they almost they expect me to have a very strong opinion about this. And I don't. Mm. Um, I'm very agnostic about food. So okay. um, you should feed your cat a food that is AFCO. Uh, meets AFCO guidelines. So AFCO is the regulating body that determines like the nutritional levels that should be in your food. And it'll be uh, on the label, food. right? It will be very clearly on the label that okay. it meets AFCO guidelines. And you should feed your cat um, basically the best food you can reasonably afford that they like and you like. Um, you know, the research is very unclear about the harms of dry food and people get really like like kibble's poison and, um, you know, I'm probably Mm. angering people right now, but I just, um, (laughs) like (laughs) the evidence is not that strong. Um, usually, so dry food is associated with certain things like obesity, but dry food is also associated with free feeding. So it's very hard to tease apart, um, the pros and cons. So the, the main difference between the two is that dry food does have less water content and it is more processed. So, um, there, there may be some, um, Issues with processing that, you know, like I said, still an open question, but it it definitely has less water content. So um, if you have a cat who is older and has kidney issues or urinary tract issues, um, then more wet food is probably better. Um, If your cat does eat dry food, they may drink more water. Um, That's the research suggests that cats who eat dry food will consume more water to kind of compensate for the lack of moisture in their food. So, um, so usually cats are pretty good at figuring out if they need to drink or not. Um, you know, assuming that they're healthy. Um, and you know, like I said, when you have a, a senior or a cat with health issues, different question. Um, so I always recommend people talk to their vet and, um, keep in mind that a lot of pet food, um, marketing <laughs> is, mm-hmm. um, based on, um, appealing to people's emotions or their anthropomorphizing of their pets right? and do not necessarily represent what's best for your cat's health. Um, so, you know, like I said, I have feed what makes you happy and what makes your cat happy and make sure that it meets your cat's uh, requirements for nutrients. And um, one, one benefit of the dry food is just, it's, it is easier to use with food puzzles. Yes. Um, if you really, you know, want 
the benefits of both. I mean, I feed my cats both. And so we use dry food for puzzles and they get um, wet food more in a meal style. So they kind of have dry food they can come back to um, in the puzzles and I'm, you know, they get a measured amount. So I know how much they're eating. Um, but yeah, so I think you can, you know, you don't have to choose one or the other um, if you don't want to. So. Right. <laughs> That's my, uh, yeah, long-winded, non-committal answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I appreciate your candor on that. And it brings up an yeah. important point, which is because I, I know this is the case with, you know, the nutritional information on the labels is that it is formulated based on the average cat's or like a healthy cat's mm-hmm. needs. And your cat may not be at that point. They may be at a different life stage. They may. So it's always best to talk to your vet. And yep. try to get a good baseline for what you should be feeding. Yes, absolutely. Um, and Linda Case has written some really great books on choosing pet food. Um, and there's a book by Marion Nestle too that kind of oh, you know, I love really, Marion Nestle. <laughs> yeah, really cuts to um, like the, the what does the science really say and what should we be most concerned about and and you know really kind of not letting not letting yourself get too sucked in by again marketing, which right. is a huge component of the pet food industry. Yes, agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what is next for you? Do you have any research that you're working on that you're excited about? And how about this book you're working on? Yeah. So, um, I am no longer a full-time researcher. Um, yeah, I left UC Davis. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I have a couple of like projects I'm wrapping up, um, one on kind of humans attachment to their cat compared to their attachment to a romantic partner. Mm -hmm. Um, so we are in the process of writing up that manuscript right now. Mm -hmm. And I am also, um, helping on a project looking at um, basically um, kittens experiences in the shelter environment and their later adoption outcomes. So how satisfied their adopters are with them and their behavior. Um, So yeah, I'll have a couple, you know, still have a couple projects that will be hopefully out in the next year or so. I mean, research takes forever. And then once you, once you finish the research, you have to write it up and then you have to go through peer review. So it can take, you know, years sometimes unfortunately um but yeah the thing i'm most excited about right now is that um i'm working on a book about cat play and it's going to be um kind of half the science behind play and predatory behavior in cats and then half more prescriptive like how to play with your cat what toys i recommend how to move the toys like when to play dealing with behavior problems um and that come up around play or how we can use play to improve behavior so um that book is um going to be called play with your cat (laughs) um Subtitle to be determined still, you know, and it'll come out in 2023. So um, unfortunately, another thing that takes a long time is um, I'm actually almost done writing the book, but, mm, but pub- publishers have um, publishers have a very strict schedule. Um, I, you know, need to find an illustrator. And, right. Um, yeah, you can't really um, jump the line just because you finish writing it early because they've got their whole schedule planned out for like several years. So, um, but yeah, so that'll come out in 2023 and I'm really excited. Play is actually like my favorite topic about cat behavior. So it's been my dream to write a book about it. So yeah. Yay. That's awesome. Uh, we would love to have you back when that book comes out. Yeah. Great. Yeah. And it'll be out on, um, Tartar Peregrine, which is an imprint of Random House. So, um, so yeah, it'll hopefully be out there in the world and, um, just have to wait. (laughs) All right. We will sound the trumpets when it, when it releases. Okay. I appreciate it. Um, well, Dr. Michael Delgado, thank you so much for being on the show today. We really enjoyed having you and um, a lot of amazing information about how to feed your cats. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was really nice to chat with you. Hey. 
April 17th through the 23rd is National Pet ID Week, and the 23rd itself is National Lost Dogs Awareness Day. So let's talk microchipping. Why microchip your pet? Because it's your best bet at being reunited with them if they're ever lost or stolen. No matter how much we talk about microchips, there's always a lot of misunderstanding about what they are and how they work. The way we use the word microchip is often to refer to computers and phones and devices that we think of as having immense technological power. But the term microchip just refers to any integrated circuit packaged on a semiconductor material, often silicon, which means that literally every single electronic device we use has some sort of microchip in it, from a clock radio to a Dell 2-in-1 tablet with a detachable keyboard. Sorry, I've been shopping for computers recently. The first thing any clinic or rescue should do when they find an animal is scan it for a chip. If there's a chip and the owner's information is current, they can get that pet back to the owner lickety-split. If not, well, it's going to take a lot longer at the very least, and what's more likely is that the pet and owner won't be reunited. Just a little bigger than a grain of rice, a pet microchip is contained in a capsule made of bioglass, which is used extensively in both pet and human implants, ensuring that nothing from the inside of the microchip gets into your pet's body. It gets injected using a thicker needle than the ones generally used for shots. It takes a brief moment and causes minimal distress. The most important thing to remember is that it's not a GPS tracker. It's simply a chip that contains information to look up in a database to find the contact info for the owner. When a microchip scanner is activated, it sends a pulse that gets picked up by the chip. The chip, normally inert and without power, absorbs energy from the scanner, sends a radio frequency signal back to the scanner containing the microchip number and the phone number of the microchip registry, like found.org, which is free to use. That's it. A very simple transmission of data, and then the microchip's work is done, and it lays there dormant until hopefully it's not needed again. That brings us to our final but very important point. Because the chip only contains the number and the manufacturer's phone number, it's very, very important that you keep your info updated on whatever site you use to register it. It's no different than updating your address with the post office. I'd argue that it's more important. Not giving your current address to the post office means you won't get your mail. Not updating your address in the registry means there's a very good chance you won't be reunited with your pet if it gets lost. We've had so many found pets brought to us that are microchipped, but after we do some digging, we discover that the owner has moved three or four times since then. That means the likelihood of them getting their pet back drops very, very low, and that defeats the whole purpose. Microchips are a cheap, easy way to have your identifying information attached to your pet internally so that it can't get lost. The pet has to have this chip in it for the duration of its life. Your end of the bargain is to do right by them and keep your information up to date. Want to learn more about microchipping? You can head back to episode 25 with Found Animal CEO Brett Yates and learn how they've worked to make microchips as accessible to as many pet owners as possible. And now we say goodbye to you, friends. Big thanks again to Dr. Michael Delgado for filling our brains with information about feeding our cats. Want to check out more of her work? Just head to Michael, that's M-I-K-E-L, Delgado.com or WhatYourCatWants.com. As for us, we're a nonprofit just trying to keep pets and people together, and you can help. Just head to PRCKC.org, and you can donate, volunteer, shop our online store, and more. If you're listening to us on your favorite podcasting app, be sure to rate us and leave us a review because... That brings us more listeners, and that means more people are learning about pets. So, tail wags and purrs to you and yours, and we leave you with the words of Takashi Hiraide from his book, The Guest Cat. Having played to her heart's content, Chibi would come inside and rest for a while. When she began to sleep on the sofa, like a talisman curled gently in the shape of a comma, 
and dug up from a prehistoric archaeological site, a deep sense of happiness arrived, as if the house itself had dreamed the scene. Take care. Pet Resource Radio is a production of the Pet Resource Center of Kansas City, produced, written, and hosted by Sierra Howe and David Shapiro, recorded, edited, mixed, and mastered by Dave Shapiro, music by Hazel Raw Musical Industries, a.k.a. me. More info at soundcloud.com slash Hazel Raw Musical Industries. <laughs>